Clancy Pasta presents A Genetically Altered A Billionaire's Son I Wish I Hadn't Written by N.S. Lewis and narrated by Clancy Ten million dollars. They say everybody has a price, and that was, apparently, mine. That's what it took for me to abandon all ethics, caution, and respect for human life. It wasn't worth it. Not even close. Mr. Minkowski sat across from me, my cluttered office desk between us. I want you to fix my son, he said looking me directly in the eyes. It was silly, but I felt like I was back on the schoolyard 40 years ago, getting stared down by the class bully, just before he pantsed me. I shook my childish intimidation away. Mr. Minkowski was a billionaire, but he was still just a man. And he was in my office, not the other way around. And what's wrong with your son? I asked. What isn't wrong with the little shit? For starters, he's a goddamn runt. Asthma and big glasses and buck teeth and... You fucking name it. Okay, so... You'd think the kid would at least be smart, right? You know he's not good at sports, not a chance with the girls. So, you'd think he'd bury his big-ass crooked nose in books. Maybe get into computer programming, shit like that. You'd be wrong. The little fucker is dumb as a brick. Barely knows his multiplication table. 8th grade reading level. He's 15 years old, Doc. I shifted in my seat. I presume he has some disorder that makes him a candidate for gene therapy? That's the thing, Doc, Mr. Minkowski said, keeping his eyes locked on mine. We've had him tested and tested. There's nothing wrong with him, other than the asthma and every fucking allergy known to man. There's nothing wrong with him, and there's everything wrong with him. You see? He just ended up with all the shit genes, that's all. He got unlucky. But, you know what? When you've got the money that I've got, luck doesn't mean as much. That's when you come in. I'm sorry that you wasted a trip down here, Mr. Minkowski, but if your son doesn't have any disorder that's been approved for gene therapy, I'm afraid... Not talking about ordinary gene therapy, Doc. I'm talking GTCA Final Phase CRISPR. I frowned. How do you know about Final Phase? Mr. Minkowski smiled. Oh, I see. You think because it's a top-secret government project, I couldn't possibly know about it. Doc, I am the fucking government. Nothing happens in this country that I don't at least know about. And most of the time, it happens because I say it happens. So I want you to put my idiot son in the CRISPR or however the hell you do it, and I really don't care how you do it, Doc, and fix him. Change all of his genes to the good ones. That's not how it works, I said, looking down at my desk. His stare had become unbearable. In certain cases, simple Mendelian diseases. Well, that is the entire goal of the project. We could possibly do something for your son, even at his age. But what you're talking about, you're talking about complex polygenetic traits that we're not even close to understanding. 
Cut the bullshit, Doc. I've read the articles. You think I haven't done my research? That I'm an idiot like my subnormal son? You guys have found hundreds of IQ genes, hundreds of height genes. I'm not asking for a super genius NBA star. I know you haven't found them all yet, but you've found enough to make a difference. I lifted my eyes and returned his gaze. I'm afraid that you're mistaken, Mr. Minkowski. There have been numerous genome-wide studies that, yes, find statistically significant associations between certain variants and phenotype outcomes. I want to stress the word associations. As far as we know, there is absolutely no causal relationship between these variants and the outcomes. Well, it's the best shot I got for fixing my embarrassment of a son, so I want you to go ahead and do it. You're not listening, sir. We don't know what will happen if we start messing around with thousands of variants in your son's genetic code. We're not even close to understanding what exactly the function of these variants are, or how they interact with others. Ten million dollars, said Mr. Minkowski. That's just for you, Doc. I'll cover whatever other expenses there are, of course. Ten million fucking dollars. You got that? That's a chunk of change, even for me, but I figure the ROI's gonna be pretty high. This little shithead'll bankrupt me and blow the family fortune unless you fix him. I know it. The mention of ten million dollars had made me lightheaded. Still, I kept my composure. You understand that there is absolutely no way to tell what will happen to your son if we do this. The most likely outcome, I'm afraid, is that he will not come back alive from the procedure. I'm okay with that, he said. And don't worry about if shit hits the fan. I'll have my lawyers draw something up absolving you of all responsibility. I know there's some risks, but Jesus Christ, Doc. Once you see this little shithead, you'll understand. He's worthless. I gotta try to fix him. It's my fatherly duty. In retrospect, it is clear to me that Devin Minkowski did not have the mental acuity to consent to the procedures. Of course he didn't. Even if his IQ had been considerably higher, what 15-year-old boy can wrap his brain around the complexity of his genetic code? Most adults can't do that. Nevertheless, when Devin agreed to the procedure, saying that he just wanted me to fix what was wrong with him, and he didn't care if he died, I told myself that he was willingly consenting. The money had bound and gagged my conscience, which should have been screaming in horror at the atrocity I was about to commit. Instead, I told myself that I have a family to think about too. And if the child wants the procedure, despite the risks, then I'm doing a clear good. It is incredible how easy it is to rationalize away the worst actions. The treatments went on for a year, and on the last day of them, I hid away in the bathroom and cried tears of relief that Devin made it through alive. I knew that we weren't out of the woods yet, but that he had survived in the first place did wonders to relieve whatever was left of my conscience. I dried my eyes and returned to my office. 
where Mr. Minkowski was waiting for me. Gotta say, Doc, part of me wonders, did you even do shit? Or have you been putting me on this whole time? Fucking kid still looks exactly the same. Still dumb as a sack of flour, so tell me right now, and I'll know if you're full of shit. You been jerking me around? I assure you, Mr. Minkowski, the procedure was a success, for my end. You can easily compare Devon's before and after SNPs and see for yourself. As I told you from the start, the outcome of this procedure would be completely unknown. It was always quite possible, as I have explained, that there would be no observable change in Devon. If there is a change, it is likely to take some time to manifest. DNA, as you know, is instruction, and not completed construction. I just wasted 20 fucking million dollars, didn't I? Said Mr. Minkowski, frowning. Nothing happened. God damn it. Oh, how I wish that nothing had happened. At his one-month checkup, it was apparent that Devin's hair was growing lighter, from a deep red to a rusty blonde. Freckles were disappearing from his face. By month two, his vision was growing sharper, and he needed a weaker prescription. By the third month, he had grown four inches taller and was now able to wear contact lenses. His hair was completely blonde, and most of his freckles were gone. It went on and on like this. His asthma cleared up, his grades improved dramatically, he kept growing taller and taller, and came to have 20-20 vision. Somehow, his teeth even straightened out. I was amazed, and Mr. Minkowski was delighted. We convinced ourselves, over a $3,000 bottle of scotch, that we had made the most important scientific breakthrough in the history of mankind. No more disease, no more maladies, no more stupid people, as he put it. The possibilities were incredible to imagine. But still, there was the smallest part of me that would not let me rest easy. That part shut up completely, when Mr. Minkowski announced that he was giving me a $5 million bonus. You earned it, Doc. Goddamn miracle worker. And who knows how many millions, billions, you saved me in bailing the kid out of trouble. So take it, and take ownership of this. I know we're still a few years out from when you can tell the world, but once you do, you're going to be a legend, Doc. I smiled, my head light from the scotch, the money, and the feeling of success. I felt like a legend. I sat in my office with Devin Minkowski across from me. It was the last of his monthly checkups. After that, he was to see me once a year. I was amazed at how completely he had been transformed in the course of a year. It was as though the Devin sitting across from me now was a completely different Devin than the one that I had seen a year ago. He retained only a few traces of his former phenotypes. You must be relieved, Doctor, said Devin in his now deep, soothing voice. His stutter was completely gone. Oh, I'll miss seeing you every month, Devin. That's not what I mean, 
I mean, you must be relieved that you didn't murder me. You know as well as I do that this was always the most likely outcome, given our present knowledge of genetics. Are you not happy with the procedure, Devin? It's funny. The one thing that hasn't changed about me is my memory. I still remember everything in that crude, impressionistic manner in which I used to experience life. I remember the day that I met you, how scared I was. But overpowering that fear was hope. Hope that if I did this, my father would finally love me. Devin laughed. And you know what? It worked. He loves me. He's proud of me. And it's all because of you, Doctor. I smiled. In a few years, Devin will tell the world about you. Then it won't just be your father that loves you. The whole world will. Devin returned the smile. That will be nice. But listen, I want to thank you. Formally. I want to do something special for you. That's hardly necessary. Oh, I've been planning it for a month. Here, he said, reaching down onto my desk for a pen and a pad. He wrote down an address in perfect handwriting. This is our house. Be here at 6 p.m. tonight, okay? Please bring your family. You have a wife and a son of your own, right? Please bring them. Don't need anything beforehand. It's going to be very special. That sounds great, Devin. We'll be there. By 6.30 that evening, we were all seated at the Minkowski's massive dining table. Devin walked around the table, pouring out a dark red wine into our glasses. Mom? He asked, standing in front of his own place setting. It's okay, right? Just one glass in celebration? Oh, I suppose, said Miss Minkowski. Just one, though, Devin. And doctor, you wouldn't leave your son out of the toast, would you? Please, dad, said my son. I nodded, and Devin poured the wine in, and then went back to his seat. A toast, said Devin, holding up his glass. To scientific progress, and to the good doctor. Cheers, said Mr. Minkowski. I smiled as we all cleaned glasses, and then I had a sip. I cooked dinner myself, said Devin. We have chefs, you know, but I dismiss them for the night. It's amazing, really. Even cooking has a genetic element to it. I don't know what it is exactly, but I can tell you that last year, well, I could hardly assemble a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It smells delicious said my wife. He really is amazing, said Mrs. Minkowski. Now, mother, said Devin. He really is amazing now, you mean. And before? Well, before I was a piece of shit. Isn't that right, mom? Devin, said Mr. Minkowski. You should all probably take a deep breath and enjoy this moment said Devin. In a few seconds, the tranquilizers will hit. 
Maybe you can feel them already. Oh no, doctor. There goes your son. I looked over as my son's head dropped, his face slamming down onto the table. I began to stand up, my heart pounding, but then it hit me, too. I awoke unable to move or close my eyes. I was sitting in a theater, staring up at a screen, which projected my own image back to me. I was bound to one of the chairs, my eyelids taped open. A device positioned above my head dropped water into my eyeballs every few seconds. There was a gag tied around the back of my head and stuffed into my mouth. The image on the screen was live footage from the camera strapped to Devin's head. Devin was standing on the floor below the screen. To one side were four people also bound and gagged. My son, my wife, and Mr. and Mrs. Minkowski. To the other side was a table with a tray of surgical tools on it. I struggled to cry out, but it was no use. Ah, the good doctor is awake, boomed Devin's voice over the loudspeakers. He was talking into a headset. I watched as he walked over to the table and picked something up. On the screen, I could see what he saw. It was a scalpel. Devin picked it up and turned his head so that the image on the screen was my son. Tears were streaming down his face. My son's head grew larger on the screen as Devin approached. Then it filled the entire screen. I watched helplessly as the scalpel caressed my son's cheek. Devin pressed it down until a spot of blood appeared. I've been studying your family, doctor, while you slept, and here's what I've observed. Your wife, she has a truly beautiful face, but let's be honest, she's grown a little flabby down there. Meanwhile, your son's face is a bit smashed, but what a body. So athletic, like a lean and hungry animal. So I'm standing here looking at them, and it hits me. What if I cut off her head and sew it on his body? The camera, which had been alternating between my wife and my son, swung out back towards me, and on the screen, I saw myself pale and sweating. No, I screamed, uselessly in my head. Please, no. So I was getting ready to go ahead with the procedure, have a nice little surprise waiting for you, doctor, when you woke up, but then something else hits me. A real mindfuck of a question. If it's her head on his body, then who is it? Her? Him? Or something else entirely? Devin looked again from my wife to my son, their faces, expressions, of total horror. Speaking of mindfucks, said Devin, turning to his father. Mr. Minkowski's face appeared on the screen, trembling as much as the restraints would allow. This guy. Who is he? Is he my father? I don't know. If we went on Murray, 
and they ran the test, what would they find? Probably that he's not my father. But he feels like my father. The man I loved for the first 15 years of my life. The man who never loved me back. But you know what? Now that he finally does love me, I don't love him. I don't want it to feel like he's my father. So I need to make a change. And I'm standing here thinking, what's the defining feature of my father? What can I change that will make him not be my father? And I've got it. The camera slowly panned down to Mr. Minkowski's body until it reached the crotch of his pants, which was saturated with urine. It's his big fucking balls, said Devin. That's his defining feature. It's what he himself always attributed his success to. His big fucking balls. I tried to turn my head away. I tried to close my eyes. I felt dizzy, and I tried to will myself unconscious. None of it worked, and as I unavoidably watched Devin perform surgery on his father, I tried not to vomit, but that didn't work either. Bile leaked out around my gag and dripped down my chin. Devin worked mercifully quickly, as though this 16-year-old boy had been a skilled surgeon his entire life and began cauterizing the wound. His work finished, he stood up, and looked again at Mr. Minkowski's face, which was now unconscious from pain and shock. So how do I feel? Well, it still feels like this asshole is my father. We're going to have to try something else, doctor. But what? Devin turned back to me, and began walking up the theater aisle until my own face filled the screen. I know, he said, the camera gazing to my eyes. If I can't escape my father, then I want him to look like he really is. My mother, too. I want you to turn them into pigs, doctor. Legit, oinking, filthy pigs with snouts and everything. But keep their memories in there, like you did with me. You can do that, right, doctor? Devin traced the bloody scalpel over my cheek, and for a moment I prayed that he would get it over with and slit my throat. But he didn't. He moved it down and cut away my gag. I coughed the bile out of my mouth and took a deep breath. Doctor, he said, tell me you can do that. It, it wouldn't work, I gasped. I have faith in you, said Devin. Just look at what you did to me. It's impossible, I tried to explain. With you, I just switched around some variants, all within existing human parameters. But I can't put a human being inside of a pig's body. You can, said Devin, and you will, if you ever want to see your family again, I mean. I'm going to take them with me. They'll be well provided for, don't worry, 
In fact, they may never want to come back. But doctor, if you fuck up, if you fuck up, they die. Do you understand? Yeah. Yes. That's a good doctor. I'll be taking my parents with me as well. You let me know when you're ready for them. I imagine you have some research to do. But don't take too long. No. It would be very bad if you took too long. You have a year. It's been eight months, and all I have to show for it is a sickening pile of dead mice. Once, I thought that I had gotten one of them to grow a snout, but it turned out that I had merely created a new, deadly, inflammatory disease. I'm at the end of my rope, and near the end of my funds. My desperation has brought me to this form. An internet search led me to a story here about a man encountering a giant chicken man. That turned out to be, for reasons that I won't get into, a dead end. But as I read more stories here, I realized that people have encountered all sorts of amazing things. I am open to anything. A scientist out of the mainstream who has maybe been performing some unnatural experiments. A witch with a spell to turn the Minkowskis into pigs. A deal with the devil, even. I feel as though I've already made one. So another won't hurt. Anything. I know that I am responsible for this ungodly situation, and I do not deserve sympathy. But my family is innocent. Please, if you know of anything that might help them out of this, let me know. Part 2 A couple of nights ago, I attempted to make a chicken cashew dish. I skimped on the ingredients and didn't plan the timing very well while I was cooking. I was rewarded with a mess that was both mushy and tough, and wholly inedible. A couple of years ago, I edited a few thousand nucleotides out of the billions in Devin Minkowski's genome, recklessly risking his life. My motives were purely selfish, and what emerged from the procedure was a violent psychopath focused on enacting revenge on his father for not loving him for what he was before. What comes out is a function of what goes in. I say this as a scientist and a human being. We reap what we sow. Thank you to all who read my previous post, and to those who offered solutions to my problem. I read them all and appreciated the thought that went into them. Many of the suggestions were all but impossible to follow through with, but the people making them couldn't have known that, because I did a poor job of properly explaining the situation. For eight months, Devin watched me. He had some kind of surveillance on me no matter where I went, and in our communications he would constantly remind me of this, by dropping some mundane detail of something that I had done that day. How was the Cobb salad, doctor? Meanwhile, I had no idea where Devin, or my family, was holed up. The fact of Devin's surveillance alone cut off many of my options. 
Even without that particular imbalance, Devon held untold advantages over me, in the form of billions of dollars, and the personal connections that come with those dollars. To give a small example, the one time that I met with Devon in person at a cafe, he brought along two bodyguards. I also know, or at least strongly suspect, that Devon had many high-level officials and professionals in his pocket. If not, then how did the fictional boating accident that killed Devon's parents so easily become a fact? I do want to mention one suggestion that I saw appear often in the comments, namely that I should modify my own genes in order to make myself more intelligent. I have toyed with this idea near the start of this nightmare, but abandoned it for a few different reasons. First, it would take too long. Second, I already possessed most of the variants that I had edited into Devon's code, and so was unlikely to see a massive improvement. Still, after I read these comments, I revisited the idea. I opened up Devon's case file again and spent several hours poring over it. Maybe there had been one tweak which had made a dramatic, rapid difference, and maybe it was one that I could make in myself. As I was looking through the file, which included a series of photographs, I marveled again at how completely different Devon had grown in the course of a year. Almost nothing about him was the same. And then, there in my house, which felt both empty without my family and intruded upon by the hidden surveillance equipment, I had a realization. Almost nothing about Devon was the same. That meant that some things were. Two days ago, I received a message from a man named Elias Khan, telling me that he had found a solution to my problem. He wanted to make me an offer. The message directed me to a post on r slash nosleep, which can be found here. My curiosity grew to excitement as I read Elias's post. He appeared to be an experienced biologist. Maybe he had found a way to successfully graft pig appendages onto humans. And maybe this would be acceptable to Devon. It sounds terrible that I was excited about the prospects of grafting a pig's nose and ears onto a human head, but you have to understand the alternatives. It was better than actually turning the Minkowskis wholesale into pigs, and it was certainly better than the murder of my wife and son. As I read on, my stomach dropped. Elias was no biologist, at least not in an ordinary sense. He was into some dark, horrible shit. I read in horror as Elias described drugging his assistant, performing some sort of unholy ritual, and turning her into a monstrous, deformed swine. I thought of that poor woman, screaming, trapped in the body of a pig, and picked up my phone to call the police. This is what you asked for, I thought, putting the phone back down on my desk. You did this. I got up, dizzy, and poured myself a scotch. Then I took a long shower, 
thinking about what I was going to do. I just wanted it to be over with. I just wanted my family back. I dried myself off and then messaged Devin with a link to Elias Khan's post. Even after my shower, I felt dirty. And hungry. I hadn't been taking care of myself since that terrible day at the Minkowski Theater, when Devin abducted my family. I decided that I needed my strength to do what I was about to do, but when I looked through the cupboard, there was no food there. Devin called me while I was in the supermarket, picking out a chicken breast for dinner. This could work, doctor, he said. I need to put eyes on it, make sure it's real. Finish up your shopping, and then head home. There will be a package there for you. I messaged this Mr. Khan and set up a meeting. I already know his address. It's only a five-hour drive for you. I would prefer if you could make it there tonight. If the pigs check out, I can book you a hotel nearby and be on a plane and in the air by morning. I am just as anxious to have this done and over with as you must be. My father's whining has grown intolerable. Any questions? What if he's a serial killer? I asked, as a woman pushed her cart by me, staring. She could have been one of Devin's agents, or she could have just been startled by the flash of the conversation she heard. What happens if I go there, on your behalf, and I'm murdered? What happens to my family? It's in their best interest that you stay alive, Doctor. And mine. That's part of what the package is for. You're prepared to pay the price he's asking? I don't know what that is yet, I said. Does it matter? No, I said. And hung up. I checked my list. All that was left was the garlic, cashews, and... Honey? I had to buy a whole jar of honey for one dish? I decided to skip the honey. Maybe that's what ruined it. When I got home, the package wasn't on my front steps. It was sitting on my living room couch. Inside were two items. A pair of eyeglasses and a pistol. The glasses came with some simple instructions. They had a camera in them. It looked as though, rather than Devin spying on me, I would be doing the spying for him this time. I messaged Elias Khan, telling him that I wanted to meet tonight, and verify that the ritual was legitimate and not just a hocus-pocus show. As I was cooking dinner, my phone notified me of Elias' response. My esteemed Dr. Lewis, I am delighted that you are interested in pursuing a relationship. I have no commitments on this dark and delving evening, and would be well pleased to more formally make your acquaintance. He gave me his address. I wrote back that I would be there in several hours. And so, it was arranged. As I was communicating with Elias, the garlic burned. The dish was a disaster. I arrived at Khan's estate just after midnight, the gun tucked into my waist, and the glasses hooked over my ears. I approached a wide set of gates, flanked by two torches 
with yellow flame dancing in the moonless night. The gate swung slowly open with a long creak, and I drove on until I reached a massive stone building, faintly lit by more torches. I stepped out of the car and heard all manner of chirping and grunting coming from behind his house. That's right, I thought, trying to let my rational brain push down the fear. He said that he has a private zoo. I approached a large wooden door with an iron knocker in the shape of a crow. I shuddered as I grasped the cold metal and knocked. No one answered. I kept knocking, banging harder and harder, the sound filling the night. At last, the door swung open, and there was Elias Khan, looking every bit as evil as I had imagined him. Dr. Lewis, he said, in a thin, barely audible voice. You must excuse me. I'm not as quick on my feet as I once was, and, as you know, my assistant has recently taken a leave of absence. My stomach tightened, but I held my composure. Let me see her, I said. Of course. Come in. I stepped in and looked around. The walls and the floor were constructed of stone, as was the winding staircase to the second floor. Sconces holding lit candles lined the walls, except where there were bookcases, overflowing with thick and ancient tomes. Follow me, Dr. Lewis. We walked around the corner to a wooden door behind which was another set of stone stairs heading down. As soon as Elias pushed the door open, I heard it. A woman whimpering in anguish and despair. I shivered and followed Elias as he took a torch from the wall and walked down the steps. A faint, unpleasant smell grew stronger as we descended. It smelled like a pig pen. Then we were on a dirt floor. I could only see the first few feet illuminated by Elias' torch, but I could hear the horrible noises growing louder. Then I saw it. The hooves first cracked and crooked, then a sinewy leg, and finally the torso of the beast. Six pairs of human female breasts hung from its heaving pig belly. I couldn't hold back and vomited on the dirt. Elias let out a soft chuckle. Are you satisfied? He asked. I steeled myself and took the torch from him, holding it up to the thing's whimpering face. There, behind a bloated pig's nose, were two human eyes, full of human tears, full of human pain. Can you turn her back? I asked. The flower fades to make fruit, the fruit rots to make earth. Out of the mother and through the spring exultances, ripeness, and decadence, and home to the mother. She will turn back, Dr. Lewis, in her own fashion, 
I pulled out my phone and typed a message to Devin. Do you see? I got an immediate reply. Good. I will be there in the morning. I am sorry, I said to the beast, as I pulled the gun from my waist and cocked it. I saw the flickering flame reflected in the creature's eyes, and I thought, a flash of relief. With a trembling hand, I fired a bullet into its head, and it dropped away into the darkness as my ears rang from the shot. Now we shall discuss terms, said Elias, taking the torch from me, and turning back to the stairs. He led us up and into a kitchen where there was a wooden table and ancient non-electric appliances. Sit, he said, indicating a chair. I looked around. There was a window on one wall. I'd rather stand, thank you, I said leaning up against it. Oh, to be a young stallion once again, said Elias, sitting down and groaning softly as he did so. What is the price? I asked, crossing my hands behind my back. My masters have become very keen on you and your methods. They request your services. Who are your masters? Should you accept, you will come to know them, said Elias. What services do they request? Whatever is required. They are to be in your employ for twenty years' time. If you choose to leave after the hourglass has run its course, you are free to do so. However, none have so chosen yet. Whatever is required, I asked. Do I get to live at home with my family? As you may have observed, I am currently in need of assistance around my house. This is where you will begin your apprenticeship. You will live with me. My heart was pounding. My wife, I thought. My son. I'm doing this for them. And that's it? my family isn't involved at all? Not in the least, said Elias, wavering his liver-spotted hand through the air. Rather, your old family will not be involved. You will come to think of us as a new family, Dr. Lewis. I promise you. All right, I said, reaching up into my right sleeve behind my back. Excellent, said Elias. The contract is all drawn up. You merely need to sign it. I pulled the plastic baggie out of my sleeve. Not yet, I said. It's not you, it's on my end. Before I sign anything, I want to see my family here in front of me. I sprinkled some dust on the windowsill. I understand, said Elias, flashing an unsettling grin. You do not trust the younger Minkowski. That is quite wise of you. 
I suspect that his hatred is pure, and he will be quite eager to do the deed and make the exchange. However, we will wait. We'll be here tomorrow. If he brings my wife and my boy, I'll sign the contract. Tomorrow, then, said Elias. I would see you out myself, but I am not as sprightly as once before, you understand. I can see myself out, I said, wiping the last of the dust from my hands. The next day, I was back at Elias's kitchen table, this time sitting. Elias was at the wood stove brewing up some tea. I decided that I wasn't going to have any. I looked out the window, which was beginning to fog up with condensation, and saw an SUV pull into the driveway. I watched as two large men exited, Devon's bodyguards. One of them opened a door that Devon Minkowski stepped out of, while the other began roughly pulling passengers out. First came Mr. Minkowski, then Mrs. Minkowski, both with their hands bound behind their backs. I stood up and wiped the condensation off the window and peered out as another passenger was yanked from the SUV. It was my wife. I hadn't seen her in eight months. She was beautiful. Beautiful and terrified. My son followed behind her. I watched as one of Devon's bodyguards tied them to a tree, its branches swaying in the cold wind. I met the rest of the party at the front door. You see, doctor? said Devon, smiling. I've brought your family. Once the transformation is complete, they are free. You have my word. What the fuck is going on, doc? asked Mr. Minkowski. The little shit won't say. Hal, said Devon, nodding to one of his bodyguards. I believe that the doctor has a pistol on him. Would you do me a favor and pat him down? Hal patted me down and found the gun. He pulled it from my waist and finished searching me. Fair enough, I said. Follow me. I led the procession into the kitchen. We all took a seat at the table, except the two hired thugs who remained standing. Are you prepared to sign, Dr. Lewis? Asked Elias, sliding parchment across the table with a hand trembling from old age. What the fuck, Doc? Said Mr. Minkowski. You're fucking me, aren't you? I make you a rich man and this is the thanks I get? He's going to turn you into... I began. No! Shouted Devin, slamming his hands on the table. You will not ruin the surprise. Turn us into what? Asked Mrs. Minkowski, sobbing. Will you sign? Asked Elias. A line of sweat ran down my forehead. Damn it, I said. It's hot. That stove, all these people here, it's too much. 
I can't think. Can we open a window? Devin shrugged. Al, he said, to the bodyguard who was standing next to the window. Open the window. Hal reached to lift the window. It's stuck, he said. Come on, I groaned. It's so fucking hot. You have to bang it, said Elias. Hal drove his palm up, and the window jiggled, giving a hint of opening. Then he did it again, and the window shot up and opened. A puff of dust flew through the air. I looked at Devon and watched as his eyes grew wide in amazement. He struggled to breathe, but no breath came. He began to bang his hand on the table. The room broke into chaos as Al drew his gun and pointed it at everyone in turn. The other bodyguard rushed to Devon and tried to apply the Heimlich. Even if he had done it properly, it would have been useless. Devon was experiencing anaphylaxis due to his cashew allergy. As Devon's face started to swell, he stopped thrashing and turned to look at me. I returned his gaze. I'm sorry, I tried to say with my eyes. Truly. I am sorry. And then Devin sent a message of his own with his eyes. Fuck you, it said. Last night, as my wife slept next to me, I had the first of what are sure to be many nightmares. I was standing in a corner watching. Devin, as he was before the procedures, was holding out a single flower to his father. Mr. Minkowski slapped Devin's hand away, and Devin began crying. I opened an ancient book, written in a foreign language, and began reading from it. Devin screamed, and then transformed into a hideous pig, similar to the one I saw in Elias' basement. I walked over and stabbed it in the throat, blood gushing into my face. I awoke screaming. We reap what we sow. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's story. If you did, make sure to check out more of the author's work in the episode description and go to youtube.com slash clancypasta to hear new episodes first. And if you'd like your story featured in an episode, feel free to email it to clancypastastories at gmail.com. You can always get your creepy cool merch at teespring.com slash stores slash clancypasta store. And I hope you all have a great night. Cheers.